Would you open your Bibles this, this morning to the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a new mini-series, um, and the, the mini-series is on the church. It's on the church. And we're calling the series Build. Uh, this title is borrowed, as you can imagine, from Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says that he will build his church and that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's such good news. And you're also going to see the theme of building the church in our Ephesians passages today. So you'll see why we've, we've just kind of highlighted this word build. Um, and as a backdrop, it's, it's pretty interesting that our church construction project began the same week as our teaching series on the church, which we're calling Build. So here's what I just want to kind of call out. If you're visiting with us for the very first time today, um, I want to highlight that our regular practice on Sunday morning is to teach the word expositorily. And what we mean by that is to to, we, we pray about what books of the Bible that we believe the Lord would want us to teach for, for the good of your soul, for your edification and equipping. And then when we, when, when we pick those books, we, we, we teach through them a verse at a time, a chapter at a time until we're done. Because we, we so want you to hear the context of Scripture, that, which really helps us to know the divine intent of Scripture. And it keeps us from being blabbermouths and opinion givers, um, which we don't want to be. We want you to hear from God himself through the word. And so that's the way we typically go about this. And periodically we do a, a topical series. So I want you to know you're, today's a little bit different than what I usually do. I'm taking some broad swaths of scripture today. Um, but we still try to teach even a topical sermon in an expository heartbeat, in an expository fashion. So I just want you to know, if you're visiting today, we just want you to, to kind of get a sense of who we are and why we do what we do. Uh, following this series, we'll begin the book of Daniel. So will you join me in prayer as we ask God to open our eyes, you see in, the in your notes, open our eyes to what the church is and why it is so important. Heavenly Father, uh, we, just, we just want to really hide behind your word. We want your word to be first and foremost the most prominent thing in the service. Would you give me grace to stand behind your word, that the word be known and heard and seen, and not just a preacher. Lord, an understanding of your plan and design for the church has always been important. In my lifetime, it feels like it's one of the most important times in this time of history for the church to understand the church. So would you bless us with illumination? Would you open our hearts? Would you draw us ever closer to Christ and his love for his church? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did we believe that we could all benefit from a study on the church? I don't know if you saw this. This has just come out. A major research project coming from the Gallup organization has found that there has been an extreme drop in church membership over the last 20 years. Al Mohler, I don't know if you listened to his daily briefing. That was this, just this week. Uh, he made the following comments. The most important thing for us to recognize in this drop in church membership is that there are huge worldview implications to this. Make no mistake, this kind of big fall in church attendance and also in church membership in the United States points to more fundamental changes in the American worldview or the worldview held by an increasing number of Americans. And, and here's my concern as a pastor. I'm concerned that some of that worldview oozes in to the church as well. What was also interesting about this study is that the decline in church membership is coming from every generation, most particularly from the baby boomers, then the Gen Xers, and then the millennials. This is one of the reasons why Christian churches that love the gospel and love their own young people have got to understand 
that we have a major responsibility to keep that connection strong because there is no current pattern, as we saw in the past in American history, of young people moving away from the church and then coming back. There used to be, I'm old enough to remember some of those things, that you, well, you know, hopefully it's just their prodigal years and then they're going to come back. But the, the growing pattern is it seems like, no, they're moving away from the church and they're not coming back. The coming back is not happening and it's a big part of the picture here. It's important to understand how the world is interpreting this data. The Los Angeles Times recently published an article by Phil Zuckerman entitled, Why America's Record Godlessness is Good News for the Nation. The first sentence is, The secularization of U.S. society, the waning of religious faith, practice, and affiliation is continuing at a dramatic and historically unprecedented race. He continues, while many may consider such a development as cause for concern, oh, such a worry is not warranted. This increasing godlessness in America is actually a good thing to be welcomed and embraced. Democratic societies that have experienced the greatest degree of secularization are among the healthiest, wealthiest, and safest in the world. He's totally erroneous in that. But this is what's coming down the pike, right? This is what people are reading and seeing and ingesting. And then he says, enjoying relatively low rates of violent crime and high degrees of well-being and happiness. While the suicide rate increases, and, anyway. Clearly, a rapid loss of religion does not result in societal ruin. And why does he think that increasing godlessness would be good news? It's because, he says, we will have a more liberated and more advanced society. Basically, the argument is that religion is holding us back from social and moral progress. So you wonder, you, you, we wonder why this more, Im, they call it the moral revolution, I call it the immoral revolution, it, it, why, the, why there's this rapid unraveling of, of, of the issues of sex and gender and all of these things. There's a growing voice that is declaring that the church is actually what's wrong with the United States. Guys, did you know that the only real sin in the society that we're raising children in right now is to say that there's sin? That's the only real sin. We can talk about failures and mistakes and oopsies, but don't you dare say that I'm a sinner. This is a growing worldview that parents are raising their children in. And for the sake of the next generation, we have to understand God's plan for the church and why it matters so very much. In years past, to try to address this issue, one conference was held that was called Ecclesiology for Dummies. I've never liked that dummies thing. You know, I mean, it applies to me because <laughs> there's so much that I don't understand and I don't un oh, I'm not good at. And so I, I, best, I guess I sort of need a lot of different books for dummies, but, but I've never liked things that include those titles. Their hope was to address the growing ignorance or biblical illiteracy that can plague people and thus result in a devaluing of the church or a marginalizing of the church or leaving it altogether. Our elders believe that we need to regularly study the doctrine of the church because we live in a fallen and sin-bound world. We live in a world with devils filled that threaten to undo us. We live in a world that places all kinds of cultural and personal pressures on you as Christians and upon us as a church family. And you know what it's intended? It's a, there's, an, there's a strategy about it. It's intended to get us off of the divine the design that God intended. For instance, this morning, just, just in your own heart, are you a little bit kind of let down that we're going to do a study in the church? I mean, why is that so important? Well, there's been, maybe that's indicating there's been some drift or maybe there's been some ignorance or maybe some lack of study in the scripture about its importance. We can misunderstand the church. We can merely see it as some sort of man-made social or institutional thing. This, of course, you know what that results in? 
We see it all the time in Midland, Texas. It results in the church being seen less important than it really is, uh, less prioritized correctly than it should be. This results in our not seeing how important it is to regularly gather as God's people. This fosters a consumer mentality about the church that sees it just as a provider of spiritual services, just in the same way that you go to a dentist to be get a, to, for him to be a provider of dental services. And you know what? If you're not satisfied with the product, <laughs> you just take your business elsewhere. Instead of looking at this as an ecclesiology for dummies, you know what? I want to speak more to your heart. I think we could better care for your hearts if we called this ecclesiology for distracted people. Are you distracted? <laughs> Who's not? How many things have fallen on your desk this week that you didn't plan? Distraction after distraction after distraction. We need ecclesiology for distracted people. How about this? Ecclesiology for dis discouraged or disenchanted people. How much we need a study of God's design of the church for people who have been hurt in the church. Really disenchanted, discouraged. How about ecclesiology for the disconnected? People who just, they, they feel the sense of nagging loneliness and and yet they don't quite know why. And they, they don't, you know, even when they come to church, they kind of feel like kind of a sore thumb, you know. The, I'm just kind of this third party. The, the, the disconnected need ecclesiology. How about ecclesiology for the discontented? I think, I think all of those conditions of the heart need ecclesiology. I hope by the end of this study you will understand why Charles Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. I hope by the end of this study, even this morning, I hope you'll understand why I'm going to say that the church is the most precious and most important thing on earth. Why would I say that? I'm not talking about Sovereign Grace Church of Midland, though we are a part of that wonderfully vast and important church. So now, parent to parent, can I talk to you? I'm shaking. What in the world? Parents, you're not just called to raise your children to know and love Jesus. You're also raised, you're also called to raise your children to know and love Christ church. And I think we've just really fallen short in teaching that. That we've, we've just been really big on, come on, you know, we do, you know, only the Lord can save them. But, you know, you want to you wanna certainly disciple your kids to know Jesus. But as you're going to see today, to know Jesus is biblically inseparable without knowing and loving his church too. So I want to let the, the, the text speak to that. So you're not just thinking, well, this... <laughs> Who is this guy to tell us this? I'm just, I'm just repeating the voice of someone else. So here's our main point this morning. God calls you to participate in the organization of the church based upon a biblical understanding of the origin of the church and the critical part it plays in your identity in Christ. Did you ever think of that? Did you ever think of that my identity in Christ is not just personal, it's corporate? I believe the text will show that to you today. So let's, let's dive in here. Um, we just really want you to see how important it is to not see the church as a human invention but a divine institution. The church doesn't start with what we do, but what God has done to make the church. The church is people brought into being by God. The church is distinct from all other earthly communities because it has been called and made by God. You're not going to find any community like this. And that's why we have our main point this morning. So here's our first, first sub-point. From eternity past... 
God planned to have a people of his own. So remember, not just, just talking to you this morning. We're going to talk about engagement with the local church in coming messages. But this morning, it's about the origin of the church and, and an understanding the origin of a, the church to understand your identity in God's divine design. Okay? So that's where we're going. From eternity past, God planned to have a people of his very own. Um, before anything was created and before time began, God, knowing that his people would sin and would turn away from him, had an unstoppable plan to redeem back a people for his own. How did he do it? Well, as such, people were chosen by God. You're going to read about that. People, their names were written down in a book. They were called. They were brought to faith. They were brought to godliness. And ultimately, they are brought to glory. Now you ought to say, prove it. Okay, let's turn to the text. Would you read with me Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14? Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. I want you to notice that there's a plurality he's speaking about here. Blessed us. It's not just blessed you. It's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When did this plan begin? Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In, before him. in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus, oh, here's how God brought it into being. He, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance." until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So verses 4 and 5. You see the, did you see the Trinity is all over this? Trinity is all involved in God having a plan to have a people for himself. Verses 4 and 5. In his great love, the Father chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless and predestined us to adoption as his sons and daughters. This wasn't just personal, private transactions that God had in mind. God had in mind a people that he would have for himself. And that people is called the church. How would God bring it about? By giving his only begotten son. Here's the second person of the Godhead. By giving his only begotten son who provides us with redemption by his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit in all that? The role of the Holy Spirit's in verse 13. Upon your placing faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you and is the guarantee of your receiving your final inheritance with Christ in glory. So much of just, Josh, you just kind of sang Ephesians 1 today. I mean, it's so good. It was just so good. And, and, and we're going to receive that promised inheritance when we see him face to face. We're sealed for that day, thanks to the Holy Spirit. So, so, so think about when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Why is that? Because of the origin of the church has been planned before the foundations of the world. And because it's a, it was planned and assured and promised from heaven. Any current problem, any fallen culture will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. That's such good news for us. If you realize how important the church is, right? So that we're, let's keep moving here. 
So God's plan before the foundation of the world was to have a people, a family, a church, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. So here's where we can, so cultural pressure always is working on us. And it can make us, it can push us in the wrong direction. It can make us identify ourselves by something other than what God has done. How many churches are like that? I mean, there's so many ways I'm sure we're like that. That we're identifying ourselves by things far less than what God has done in bringing the church into existence, in planning the church before the foundations of the world. We've been chosen, redeemed, and sealed by God to declare his glory and presence and mission on the earth we can forget what our biblical identity is and we can allow other social issues, social realities and pressures to define us. We don't want that to define us. Just here are some notes that kind of will lead us to the next section of Ephesians. Before time, God planned to save you and give you a new identity in Christ that is both personal and corporate. God wants you to know and experience that you were personally saved by Christ. What joy that is. For sure, there's a fullness of joy to that. While at the same time, there's another fullness of joy in that he's also saved you into the family of Christ called the church. And you can't have one without the other biblically. So there's the second point. The church matters so much. Paul prays for us to see it and understand it. So let's, let's look at the, the prayer he prayed in verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, so listen to what he's praying for, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And listen to these last, this last verse. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So glad that prayer is there. I've been, so this week as I've been preparing, I've just been praying this again and again for us. Oh God, this is so important. I know my words fall so short and my understanding is so small. But by your spirit and your word, would you please open our eyes to see the origin of the church and our identity, not just as individual Christians in Christ, but as a corporate family in Christ. That's what I've been praying. I'm praying that for our kids. I hope you'll begin praying that for our kids as well. So in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that God's people would understand this miraculous change that Christ and his saving grace has made in their lives and in their identity, and that they would see how God has before the foundations of the world ordained that he would have a people for himself, that they would see themselves not just as individual believers, but a united people, a new humanity. You're going to see that now in these next passages, a family that would have him as their father. That they would know and understand that they are a people he has called out for himself and for his glory. That called out people is known as the church that has Jesus as its head. Aren't you glad it's not your pastors that are the head? (laughs) Man, that would be a train wreck, you know. So glad Jesus is the head. And then in Ephesians 2, here we go, Paul teaches them now about what Christ has done for you, both personally and corporately. 
So here we have the origin of the church, right? We've seen it in eternity past. We've seen this divine design and this unstoppable plan. And now Paul, after praying for these things, essentially takes us into a teaching of the beauty of salvation, the beauty of what it is to be saved personally, but that it's inseparable from our having a corporate identity as brothers and sisters in Christ in something called the church. So let's go into that. Here's now point number three, your new identity in Christ personally. So this is good. There's, there's a wonderful personal dimension to our salvation. Here we go. Let's read chapter two, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. No one has an excuse. But God being rich in mercy, oh, I'm sorry, that's, terrible reading. But God, <laughs> amen. In fact, say that with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So did you notice that there's a before and after thing? Before and after is such a big deal marketing-wise, isn't it? So, you know, there's issues going on with my health, so I'm, I've been having to lose weight, which is a good thing. But so, you know, you just notice, you know how whatever you're dealing with in life, you just notice commercials that you didn't notice before. So I'm noticing the commercials that say, before, right? I know, you guys, I just made you sick. I just, and that, that was, I'm sure that was so bad. But you know, the, it goes from before, then after. Which is really bad because I can't even breathe when I'm in the after, I can't even breathe. I don't think some of those people can breathe either. I think they're just sucking it in. But notice this before and after. And this is so important, parents, so important. You know, our children are as dead in sin as the 18-year-old cocaine addict. Our children, are, they're, they're in Adam. They've come from Adam, and they're, they're as dead in sin. And our children raised in the church should regard salvation as the most wonderful miracle that could ever happen to sinners like them. It's not just the outward expressions that define our sinfulness. It's the condition of our hearts as we've been born into this world without God and without hope. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, that's getting off my notes. Um... So let's notice the structure that Paul uses. Before Christ. Ellen, Ellen used a, a wonderful phrase. Ellen gave an encouragement to our pastors at the RAE about how important it is. You know, in, in our looking forward, we always need to have a rearview mirror. And we always have to be able to regularly see the pit that Christ dug us out of. Because if you don't, your, your passion for Jesus is going to fade. You're going to start thinking, I, the, the biggest miracle I need is the one at the moment. You know, the biggest miracle that will ever happen to you is to know Jesus Christ savingly. Amen? It's the biggest miracle. But it'll never, that miracle will only be as big as you're seeing how desperately you needed him and the judgment that you should have received. So he starts with before Christ, verses 1 through 3. I just call it dead, dominated, and doomed. Uh, it's just kind of what he's saying there. This is an expression of total depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly could be. But there is no part of our human nature that has not been touched and tainted by sin. And we're helpless. 
We're helpless to save ourselves from our, this condition unless God initiates grace in our lives. It's, it's, that's why we love the sovereign grace, not as church name, but as the doctrine. Aren't you glad that God is sovereign in his grace? If it was up to you to come to... Listen, how does somebody who's dead in sin, blind to God with their eyes, deaf to God with their ears, I'm just giving you scripture references, a heart as hard as stone, how does that person turn to Jesus? Unless Jesus does a real miracle of grace and opens the eyes and unstops the ears and makes the hard heart soft and makes alive the person that was once dead to God so that they can by faith now follow Jesus. How does that happen? Thank God for grace. Amen? more amazing than we can even imagine. So that was before Christ, after Christ. Oh my goodness, but God, right? Verses four through seven, rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive, new creations by his grace in Christ. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to do good gospel work for Jesus that God designed before the foundations of the world. And a promise that you would for all eternity. Don't you love that, that part? That for all eternity, you're going to just continue to experience the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ. Oh, heaven is going to be awesome, isn't it? Because we're living in a world where the constant temptation, not just in the world, but in the church, is to radical individualism. And I'm concerned that a lot of us have learned. So I know that this isn't a new passage for many of you. But here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about that you're, you're bringing into it an interpretive lens that has radical individualism at the foundation of it. That's what I want you to see this morning. God, please, please let them see this. I want you to see chapter 2 doesn't end with just radical individualistic salvation. That's not what chapter 2 is about. But it's a danger. It's just me and Jesus. And then when I have time, I'll go to church. I'll attend. You know, but see how it fosters a problem. It's the, the, that's where the very problem, the root of the problem about this diminishing membership in the church, reducing to attendance in the church, ultimately, I think you could trace it to this, this it, radical individualism about Jesus and salvation that God never intended us to know and understand. That's why Paul prayed for us, to see chapter 2 as describing what it means to be saved, both personally and now, get ready, corporately. Salvation is one coin with two sides. These two sections of Scripture are intended to open our eyes to see that God not only caused us to be a new creation individually, God also caused us to be a new humanity corporately. So be listening for those words when we read. So in Adam, let's, look, let's just look at our biblical theology. In Adam, we were alienated from God and what else? Each other. What was the deal with Adam and Eve? This was, this was, this was, the, sin did not only cause a problem between God and man. Sin caused a problem between God's people. And there was now not a people. They, they needed to be bringing together. You, you and I needed God to bring us together to himself and together with his people that he planned from before the foundation of the world, right? So let's look at this. And we're going to see these, this language of how we were alienated from God and each other, but in Christ, how we're reconciled to God and each other. And we become, listen to these words, God's household. Citizens of his kingdom, a temple for his glory, a new humanity, a place where God dwells. Let's, let's discover it. Verse 4, that's all, I mean, uh, point 4. Your new identity in Christ corporately. So here we go. God saves and reconciles us to himself vertically as individuals to be sure. But let's get the good out of this, this next passage that explains Christian identity, not just as personal, but corporate. God saves and reconciles us to himself and his people horizontally as his church. 
So did, look at, this is interesting. Let's go ahead and read verses 11 through uh, 22. So notice, notice the book. There's still, here's why I want you to see the continuity of this text. That this was one teaching. This wasn't just like about your personal salvation and then how God can conquer racism in the rest of the chapter. Though, he, though his plan conquers racism totally. Um, no. Well, let's read it. Starting in verse 11. Look at this and for the before and after. It's the same pattern that he used about your individual salvation. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If, you, if, you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's just described your condition. I don't care how many places you're trying to find hope in, they're all going to fall short and betray you. None of us are born into this world having any hope because we're without God, because of our sin. But now, oh, you see the the change? There was the before, but now, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, not just vertically, but also horizontally. Keep, keep reading. Who has made us both one and has broken down in, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. There's that phrase. A new humanity. This is your identity. It's not just personal. It's corporate. We are a new humanity. In, in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, start to just listen to all these corporate descriptions of us. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on, I'm sorry, fellow citizens, accentuate, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you see? Did you see the corporateness of that? And it's all because of Jesus' blood and resurrection. He saves a people personally to be sure, but he saves you into the body of Christ, into the church with just as much assurance. So that's why he, did, he looked to the past and he looked at how hopeless our situation was without God, but how hopeless it was that there could be any reconciliation between two of the most divided ethnicities at the time, and that was Jew and Gentile. I mean, so what, 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 what does God need to do? He sends Jesus to save us from our sins and not only to reconcile us personally to the Lord, but to give a reconciliation of someone who is lost to now being a part of the people of God, to now being a part of the people of God. And so there's the before and after. So I hope you saw the before in verses 11 and 12. The after is verses 13 through 17. It's so good, you guys. There's so much. You know, I'm doing what I've never done before. I've gone through gigantic swaths of Scripture in 39 minutes. That's a miracle. Okay, so everybody say, thank you, Jesus. Do you still do miracles? Um, so let's, let's, let's slow it down just at this point because I think this is where God wants to really not just inform you, but transform you. Not just, I think he wants to touch your hearts here 
in this, this teaching. So there's the before and after. There's a quote in your, in your notes that says this. You cannot have Christ without having Christ church. Are you seeing that in scripture? Guys, Midland, Texas, there's a lot of people who say they're Christians that have no way, Jose. You cannot have God without having his people. To be alienated from one is to be alienated from the other. In the Bible, there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. There's no such thing as a churchless Christianity. And that maybe should cause people to maybe take pause. Well, I like what Jesus did for me. I like the thought of going to heaven. But I have no love for the church. My life, the priorities of my life are anything really but prioritizing the church. Now, there could be a couple of reasons for that. One could be that you just haven't been taught. There's a biblical illiteracy, biblical ignorance. There's another possible reason that you've never really come to know Jesus savingly. Because being joined to Jesus is being joined to the people of God. And, and so in the rest of our series, you're going to hear how there is a practical expression of that. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the heavenly truth lived out amongst God's people on earth so that people could see, behold, that we're, these people are Christians by the love they have for each other. How do we know it? Well, they occasionally attend meetings together. No. No, they're devoted to God's glory in helping each other with their sanctification, helping each other with broken hearts, helping each other endure till the end forgiving each other, different ethnicities, different economic situations, different education levels, doesn't matter. Behold, we know they're Christians by their love because they constantly have a heart for each other. They have a love for the church that Jesus died for. See, you see what I'm saying? So would you just ask the Lord, show me my heart today, Lord. Has it just been ignorance and negligence? Maybe I could say negligence that, is, that has caused me to think that I can just have this little personal relationship with Jesus and have no heart for the people of God. It's one of our problems in the world. It's one of the reasons that our nation is just, I mean, listen, there's, I don't, it, but judgment starts with the house of God, guys. You know, We're supposed to be salt and light not just as little individual pieces of salt, right? We're supposed to be salt and light because of, of our lives together, too. Remember, it's a city set on a hill. It's not just a person with a flashlight, right? I mean, anyway, you guys are looking. I know. I keep, you're saying, Billy, just finish. Okay, I'll just finish. Um, so for, having said all this, we, we can forget our biblical identity and we can allow other social realities to define us. The local church isn't made up of just natural friends. It's made up of people who in some cases are natural enemies. You know, my very wife, honey, are you in here? She's greeting today. My very wife told me, you know, if it weren't that we both know and love Jesus, I don't think I would have liked you. <laughs> See, the miracles just keep rolling, don't they? Isn't it great? It's made of the people who would not naturally choose to be together. We can't forget that what binds us together is not similarities of education, ethnicity, income, politics, sports teams, hobbies, ages. We're united because God, before the foundations of the world, planned to have a people. And they would come into being because of the work of Christ on the cross to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us back into being a people for his glory. 
So here's how we're going to close. Look at the way Paul describes our new identity in Christ. When you think of your identity in Christ, do you think of these phrases? You're no longer a stranger and alien. Instead, you're a fellow citizen with all the saints. It means that you belong. Isn't that feel great? <laughs> that you belong. I know what it feels like to not belong. It sure feels good to belong. How about members of God's household? Is that part of your identity? It's a corporate part here. That you're sons and daughters in God's family. There's a place where you're loved. A place where you're cared for. A place where you're equipped for ministry. A place where you're provided for. And a place where you serve others. Is that part of your identity? It's a people made up of living stones that God has built. And is building having Christ as the cornerstone. And what they meant by that in those times... Um, literally, I, I want to, what I want to get across on this is sanctification is not just your private little experience at home. Sanctification is a corporate experience. It's not just me and Brad trying to look more like Jesus on our own. It's me and Brad in our palness, right? <laughs> in our buddiness. It's that together we look a little bit more like Jesus together. It's the Sovereign Grace Church look more and more like Jesus together in the multitude of gifts and talents and all these things. But what the cornerstone did was it demanded that the rest of the structure be the same shape as the cornerstone. Isn't that cool? That's what, I just love that. And you guys are so, it's so easy to see Jesus in this church. I, I may be prejudiced, I may be, you know, but I just, you're awesome. I love you to pieces. I love to be with you because I don't see Jesus very much a lot of times. I see my pain, I see my sorrow, I see the worries, I see my finances. But when I come to the people of God, I see Jesus. And the world is supposed to experience that. So we're living stones that God puts and joins together. And it gives us a strong foundation. And you know what strong foundations do? It gives you security. Let me ask you this. I'm a very insecure person without Jesus. I'm a very insecure person. But isn't it awesome to have a cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets who are essentially proclaiming the gospel of the cornerstone? Isn't it, doesn't it feel good to have a foundation under you? Security, isn't it? It's just security. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Because of being reconciled to God personally and corporately, we get to experience the abiding and manifest presence of Jesus. Alan's going to talk to us in a couple weeks about uh, why the meeting of Christians matters. And it's one of the ways, you guys, that God wants you to experience his presence in a way that you're not... Personal devotions are awesome and you need those. But when we're gathered as people, did you notice? His spirit is among his gathered people in a way that you won't experience in your private devotions. And so I got to ask you, so I, there's got to be people here today that feel dry and you feel kind of empty and you feel a little bit run down and you just can't really remember the last time you experienced the manifest presence of God. But I, I would ask you to look to, well, are you living in the good of what God called you to both personally in salvation and corporately in salvation? Because God wants you to experience his manifest presence and the preaching of his word and the gifts of his people and the worship of his son. Oh, it's, it, God wants to pour out fresh experience of his spirit upon his people. So here's what I have to say. You were made for this. Have you ever said, told me to tell you that, right? Where, so I was a baseball player when I was a kid. Sorry, ladies, I know I lose you on sports illustrations, but pretend I'm saying I was a baker when I was a kid. I don't know what to say. I was, I was. Anyway, I was a baseball player, and when I played third base, oh, I love third base. And I remember a coach telling me, you were made for third base. <laughs> yes. Yes. Haven't you experienced that? Somebody told you you're, you're good at art or you're good at this. And, and they say, you were made for this. Doesn't it? It's, it's like, I have a reason to be alive. I've been made for something. Sovereign Grace Church, you've been made for this. You've been made for this.
You've been made to be personally and wonderfully saved by Jesus and corporately joined together as the church of Jesus Christ. You were made for this. And when we drift and, and distance ourselves from the practical participation and engagement from the church, you're not living for what you were made for. And that's why you're slow, empty and dry and lonely. I guess if we did the opposite of this description that we just talked about, I guess probably if you're not engaged in what you were made for, I bet you feel like you don't belong a lot of times. I bet you feel a sense of being spiritually homeless. I bet you feel a nagging purposelessness. I mean, can you imagine? We got some bricks on the side of our house. They didn't get included. <laughs> and those bricks, if they had a brain, bricks with a brain, they'd probably go on, you know, I'm a certain color. I'm a brick, but I'm not, I'm not living for what I was made for. You ever feel like that? How about insecurity? Have you ever experienced just this nagging insecurity? Because you're not finding yourselves built upon the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the gospel foundation. How about experiencing just a sense of the absence of the Lord? Because you're not with the saints. You're not with the church experiencing the abiding and manifest presence of the Spirit. Josh, you want to come and close us with, oh, church, arise. So we're going to, next, next week we're going to talk about church membership and why it matters biblically. But before, see, just to go back, I think as a pastor, I think sometimes my words sound like I'm just calling you to do stuff for the church, to attend meetings. I'm sorry. I'm sorry when my words fail you like that. I think, though, you also have a tendency when you think of the church, you just think of attending. And it's not, no wonder we would see it so, it could, it could be so boring and all of this, you know. I hope today that you're seeing that before the foundations of the world, the origin of the church was the loving plan of God to have a people for himself. Would you stand?